0: Our scripture passage this morning is from Matthew 28, first six verses. Next week I'm going to begin a, uh, about a 19 or 20 week series on the book of James. But today we're just going to talk about the uh, resurrection story. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. This morning's sermon comes from this verse 6. He is not here. And that will be the focus as well as the title. You know, C.S. Lewis said that the coming of Jesus as a man was not just the greatest miracle, but the, what we called the central miracle of all his miracles. Every other miracle, he said, prepares the way for this or results from it. So the greatest thing about Jesus is that he came. He was here. He appeared. He showed up. He manifested himself. He made himself known. As John puts it in his first epistle, we have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We looked upon him and touched him with our hands. But the times when Jesus was not here are also an important part of his story. And it's not just on that first Easter morning at the tomb that Jesus was not there. He was not there all through the Old Testament as God's people waited for the promised Messiah. He was, and remember when Herod's henchmen arrived in Bethlehem to slay all the little boys under two in the aftermath of the three magi being there? Jesus was not there then either, was he? But had fled to Egypt. He was not there when he was 12 years old, on the journey home after the Passover, when his parents, Joseph and Mary, departed from Jerusalem to return to Nazareth. And at the end of the day, looked around and he was not there. And when Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick and his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent an emergency message to Jesus so that he could rush to Lazarus' side and heal him before he died, Jesus was not there when lazarus died numerous times jesus was not there with his disciples when he went off alone to be with god he was not there on the boat when his disciples with his disciples when the great wind arose in mark 6 he acted like he wasn't there when the Syrophoenician woman asked him to help her demon-possessed daughter in Matthew 15. He was not there when the nine disciples were unable to cast the demon out of the boy at the foot of the mount of transfiguration in Matthew 15, in Matthew 17, sorry. And after feeding the 5000 one day, Jesus was not there the next day when the crowd came back looking for me more. In John 6, 24. He wasn't there with his disciples after his arrest when they were afraid and didn't know what to do. He was suddenly there, not there on the afternoon of his resurrection after walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and then after he broke bread, he disappeared. He was not there 40 days later, after he ascended to heaven. And in one sense, Jesus is not with us now. He is absent from us, at least in body. Of course, Jesus is present with us through the Holy Spirit, fulfilling His promise to be with His people to the end of the age in Matthew 28, 20. And yet He's not present with us in the way that He was with His disciples. Nor is He present with us in the way that He will be present when He returns and we see Him face to face. And every one of these absences included some disappointment that he wasn't there. They expected Jesus to be there, and he wasn't. And this certainly includes the story of Mary at the empty grave. There was disappointment in the fact that Jesus was not there when Mary and the others arrived at the tomb to finish their burial procedures. Now this isn't obvious in Matthew's gospel. Which we just read. Where the angel says to the women. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said. But the disappointment is evident in John's gospel. Now. I need to talk a little bit about the differ, the varying resurrection accounts and especially the accounts of the women who came to the tomb in the various gospels for a moment because they're not easy to reconcile with one another. Matthew tells us that two Marys came to the tomb as we just read. Mark tells us that Salome was with them. Luke says it was a group of women who had followed Jesus from Galilee who were there without mentioning any names. Now, there's nothing contradictory about these versions of the story. The Gospel of John, though, just tells Mary's story without regard to the other women. Mary comes to the tomb and then when she sees that it's empty, she runs back And reports it to the disciples. And then follows Peter and John who run to the tomb themselves to see what she has reported. Now the other gospels tell us that the other women or the women interacted with an angel at the tomb. And the best explanation I think that we have to fit all these together is that there was a group of women that included Mary who came to the tomb but when they found it empty Mary immediately left the others returned back to report to the eleven disciples while Mary was gone the other women interacted with the angel at the tomb and then departed because the angel told them that Jesus had risen and they went back to tell the other believers who were waiting as well. Then Mary returned with Peter and John after the women had left. And then Peter and John, when they saw the tomb was empty, they went back to talk to the others and left Mary alone at the tomb. And Mary began to weep. Three times... In three verses, we're told that she wept. You see, for Mary, it was like salt was being rubbed in her wounds. She had already been pierced by the loss of Jesus, her beloved Lord. The only way she could think to honor Him and love Him at this point was to dress His body for burial. But she wasn't able to finish that with her helpers on Friday because the Sabbath was beginning at sunset. So she rushed out early the next morning after the Sabbath to finish the job. But now to add to the overwhelming grief she was already experiencing, the body was no longer there. And the combination of these two was more than she could bear. All she could do was weep Over the fact that he was not there, that apparently someone had removed his body. But the next verse changed everything. John 20, verses 11 to 16. Mary stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And Mary said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she knew. Now, if you think about it, Mary didn't get what she wanted. She wanted to find the body of Jesus so she could finish preparing the body for burial. She didn't find the dead body of Jesus. She didn't get what she wanted. Instead, she got so much more. She got more than she could have ever dreamed of getting. This is so important and powerful for us because, you know when we merely want God to take away our problems, we're not asking too much. We're asking too little. The Samaritan woman in John 4 just wanted Jesus to leave her alone to draw her water from the well. But instead, Jesus gave her the water of life. The lame man in John 5 just wanted help getting into the pool when it was stirred. But Jesus made him able to walk. The widow of Nain just wanted to bury her son in peace. But Jesus brought him back to life. In the storm, the disciples just wanted Jesus' help to get through the storm. But Jesus stilled the storm. Martha just wanted some help making lunch. But Jesus taught her the key to life. And then Martha and Mary wanted their brother healed. But Jesus called him forth from the tomb after he'd been dead for four days and said, I am the resurrection and the life. The lame man, later in the book of Acts, wanted coins from Peter and John so he would have something to eat. But instead, Peter and John healed him and made him walk. You see, this is our situation too. We want God to take away our problems, but he wants to do so much more. He wants to make us into beings fit to live in a new heavens and a new earth. Fit to rule over nations and angels. We want to make it through the day. He wants to prepare us for a glorious eternity. We want to get the spot off our shirt. God wants to remove every spot, wrinkle, and blemish from our souls. We want to be able to pay our bills. God wants to make us into the light of the world. In order to accomplish our goals, we need God to take our problems away. But in order for God to accomplish His goals, sometimes He's got to allow our problems to remain and bring more problems at times. Because sometimes our suffering is his best tool. So the absences of Christ are an important part of his story. His absences are just as strategic as his presences. This is true for all of the times Jesus is not here or not with us in our lives or doesn't feel like he's with us. Anyone who's studied human development, like Michelle here, has heard of the, about the concept of object permanence. Somewhere in the development and the growth of a child, a baby learns that things don't just cease to exist. That if a toy is hidden... It doesn't mean that that toy no longer exists, it's just somewhere that I can't see. The object remains permanent, even though my perception of it isn't permanent. But So, th- so these kids grow to believe in mom and dad, even when mom and dad aren't there with them. They still know they're there somewhere. And this is also part of the development of a Christian, I would suggest. Even when you can't see God, it doesn't mean that he's not there. Just because he hides himself, it doesn't mean that he no longer exists. I love playing games with little children. And one of the games I like to play is, involves something like this. I take a toy... And I, and I say, here, go get it. And they look around. And they come back to me. And I say, where is it? What happened to it? Where did it go? You know, where is it? And they are dumb. Sometimes they're uh, angry because the toy has disappeared. Sometimes they're completely confused. Like, I don't think things actually stop existing, but I have no idea what just happened. (laughs) But some kids know not only that the object is somewhere, but they are determined to find it. They are determined to do whatever it takes and figure out because they know what's going on. They know that a game is being played on them and they take it as a challenge. And that's exactly what I want. I want them to trust that the toy still exists. I want them to figure out and work to think and search determined to get their hands on that object again. And I think this is what God wants of us as well. And there's one reason, and this is one reason why God has given us this story, and many others like it. It's one of the most common themes in the Bible, in the Bible stories. In, the, in a situation, somehow, it doesn't seem like God is involved It doesn't seem like he's there. But in the end, he shows he's very much involved and very much there all along. And through it all, God teaches his little ones to trust. Teaches his people divine permanence. Teaches his people that he doesn't ever go away. That he's always there, always involved. Not only watching but ruling over everything that happens. Now this means, and this is important for every believer to come to grips with, this means that there are times when our Lord's absence is better for us than his presence. Jesus himself said in John sixteen seven. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, there are times when it's better for us if he's gone. It is to our advantage that he goes away. Away, And there's no greater example of this than when Jesus left them, left his children, to go to the cross. Not only was the Son of God hidden from them, he was dead. And it doesn't get any darker than that. It doesn't look any more hopeless than that. It doesn't look like it could be any more final than that. Even the sky went dark to signify the darkness of that moment. But the amazing thing is that even death is not powerful enough to snuff out the life and power and presence of God. And if death isn't enough, then nothing is enough. So, even when things look hopeless and cataclysmic, in reality, God's people are being taught to trust in God's power, in God's grace... In God's goodness. Remember what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. About the, struggle, the dark time he had when he was in Asia. Meaning present day Turkey. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So it is sometimes better for us when God remains invisible to us. And it's better for us right in the now of our lives... That he is not here with us in a physical way. But is in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And helping us here on earth through his spirit. We have to trust him in this. But there are also some ways that we can see, even from our limited perspective, how this is good for us and better for us. For instance... This present situation is valuable because it distinguishes between those who are sincere believers and those whose faith is based only on circumstances. You know, Jesus had many followers who only went along because of his miracles, but later fell away. Jesus himself said that seeing him raised from the dead... Wouldn't make anyone believe in itself. And there's nothing more dangerous than a person who feels like he's safe, but is really on the path to perishing. It's much better if that person realizes that he's perishing, because then he can do something about it, he can repent. He can flee to Christ. Another reason why this is valuable that Christ is not here with us now as he was in the days of his disciples is because now, in this present time, Jesus is preparing a place for us. Now, if you think about it, that's an awfully strange thing that he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, this is a God who can create the universe with the word of his power. Why does he need thousands of years to prepare a place for us? We can understand how it takes time for God to prepare us for that place, but why does it take so long to prepare the place for us? Well, there's at least one important feature of our future home, which can't be created instantaneously by the word of his power. God can't snap his fingers and create a believer who has come to see his need for Christ and learn to trust him and be prepared to be with Jesus in heaven. That takes time. There are And there are still people groups that have no believers. People groups which need to be represented in that great multitude which no one can count. From every tribe and all, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's still people that need to be brought to Christ to so for that assembly to be filled. So part of the place that that is being prepared for us is the living stones that haven't yet been brought to Christ to put in place. Some of those living stones perhaps haven't even been born yet. Some of them have been born and still haven't come to faith in Christ. And so these are things that take time. You see, before the foundation of the world, God chose a great multitude of human beings to be His eternal children. And some of those might be people yet to be born. Some might be our great-great-great-grandchildren. And in His work of drawing them to Himself and showing them the wonders of His grace... God is preparing our eternal home for us. It's not the streets of gold that take a long time to create. It's not the the pearl um, gates to the holy city. It's the living stones that are being prepared. That take thousands of years to finish. Our life in the next age is going to be better on account of our life here in this age. So we have to learn to relate to our present struggles with this in mind. In Psalm 44, the psalmist is really going through a hard time. Listen to what he says in 9 to 22. You, to the Lord, you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. You give us as sheep to be eaten. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Humiliation has overwhelmed me. We are killed all day long like sheep to be slaughtered. So this is how the psalmist is feeling. But what does he do about it? And this is important because God has put this psalm and others like it in the psalms to teach us What to do when we're feeling this way? Well, the psalmist, in response to this, his faith manifests itself in urgent, personal, direct, bold prayer. He says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression?" For our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. So his circumstances tell him that God has rejected him, hidden his face from him, forgotten him. But the psalmist knows God is not only still there, he knows that God still loves him. And is his redeemer. And so he is determined to go to God to get the help he needs. And the comfort he needs. Now that's what should have been happening with Mary. It may seem understandable that Mary was weeping. But really Mary shouldn't have been weeping. She probably did in the story. She probably did better than anyone else. She certainly did better than the twelve disciples and she certainly did better than I would have done but Mary's weeping was based on the assumption that Jesus was, was dead and would remain dead even though Jesus had told his followers over and over again that he would die and rise again on the third day As far as we know, from the gospel testimony, they all got it wrong. There's no one in the gospel story who said, We shouldn't be upset. This is what he said would happen. On the third day, he's going to rise. Just wait and see. No one, no one said that. If we had been there, we would have gotten it wrong too. When Mary came to the tomb on the third day, and the body of Jesus wasn't there... This should have been a happy thing for her. What he said had come to pass. But what Jesus had said about dying and rising was simply too hard for them to accept. Too good to be true in their minds. Likewise, when terrible things happen to us, when heartbreak and loneliness and humiliation crash into our lives, when it seems like God is not there, then we can either feel cheated and feel sorry for ourselves, we can conclude that God has abandoned us, or we can say to ourselves, this is exactly what God said would happen to us. This is exactly what He told me to expect. Instead of resenting my hardships, I'm going to expect him to bring life out of my dyings. I'm going to trust that he is working all things for my good. Because he loves me and has called me according to his purposes. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And if the pain is too intense for us to wait in peace for the promise of the Lord to be fulfilled, then we should go after it. We should beg for it like the psalmist does. Cry out for it. Where are you, O God? I need you. My heart is breaking. I need your comfort, dear Lord. Have you ever been... To that place where you've cried that from the bottom of your soul? I have. And many of us have. You can't just say it once as if it's a magic formula. It shows that we're not really desperate after all. But when Jesus does come to Mary, he doesn't rebuke her. He calls her name, Mary. And then she recognizes who he is and falls at his feet. One day, he will call our names too. And we also will fall at his feet. So, dear friends, there's a great day coming a day of resurrection and vindication, a day of glory and triumph. But before it is said He is risen, it is said He is not there. And before we are risen, we are required to walk by faith and not by sight. We are called to walk in the triumph of faith, not in the triumph yet of sight. Though we do not now see Him, as we recited this morning, though we do not yet see Him, though we do not now yet see Him, we believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. But our triumph in this life is a triumph that waits not a triumph that reigns. It's like David. Remember David as a young man was visited by the prophet Samuel who anointed him to be the new king of Israel. It was a great day for David but it certainly did not mean that his struggle was over. It had just begun. For before he actually reigned he had to suffer a lot of pain. He had to flee from a lot of danger. He had to experience A lot of grief, even losing loved ones. Like David, David, we have been anointed as kings and queens. But our royal status is hidden from the world. And God doesn't want us promenading around telling everyone we will rule over them. He wants us to serve them in the love of Christ, just as Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. But in the meantime, we know where this is headed. We know that our story has a happy ending. We know that we have to wait for it, but that the time of waiting itself is valuable. It's not just enduring. We don't just need to endure it. But we can enjoy it because it is a time of preparation. It's a time of being helped by God. It's a time of enjoying Him in this wilderness. It's a time of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He is not here, it is true. But He has risen. And one day we will rise with Him. But for now, though we have not seen Him, we love Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you have given us hope in the midst of despair. You have turned our mourning into dancing. But dear Lord, we know that your great triumph and the joy of what you have done will not be fully experienced until the return of our Lord Jesus when we see him face to face and all things are made new. So, Lord, help us to wait patiently. Help us to walk with you. Help us to rely upon you. Help us not to look to this earth and this life to give us our happiness. Oh, Lord, I'm sure that there are people here this morning who do not know the light of and the love and the hope of Christ. By your grace, O Lord, will you please melt away the barriers and open the doors that they might see you and know you and come to you. Now, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of coming to the table of our Lord. And we pray that you would feed us at your table. That we might enjoy the true food and the true drink. Which is so far better than anything this earth can give us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.